Welcome to the Cartoonist Kayfabe Courtroom. My name is Ed Piscor. I'm Jim Rugg. Today we're going to be taking a look at the uh, the testimony of Harlan Ellison in regards to the Michael Fleischer lawsuit uh, that took place uh, in response to Harlan Ellison's interview in the Comics Journal magazine. Uh, we're using Comics Journal 115 to read uh, from the deposition. But before we do that, I want to invite you guys to like, follow, and subscribe to the YouTube channel. Hit the bell icon, the notification button so that you get delivered these uh, videos ahead of everybody else uh, that helps mitigate the kayfabe effect, which is what happens whenever we talk about a book and it disappears off of eBay and Amazon within the hour. Uh, so being notified and being delivered the videos help, helps out with that. And uh, for those of you who watch the videos to the end, what that does is that delivers our uh, video content to comic book loving YouTube people uh, who have, have not seen cartoonist kayfabe videos yet uh, it helps the channel out a lot it helps us grow the channel and listen we're looking to have the cartoonist kayfabe convention series of conventions in every big metro city across the country within a couple of years right jimmy yeah i'm, I'm ready to think about it as comics as religion yeah yeah so. and comics journal is our scripture we need some disciples <laughs> the branch kayfabians <laughs> <laughs> So, uh, in the, I think, late 70s, Harlan Ellison gives an interview to the Comics Journal, talks about the comics work. Uh, he, he, he cuts promos. Uh, comics can't afford anybody good anymore. Where, where's Wrightson at now? He's over in Hollywood. Where's New Adams at? He's out in Hollywood. He's doing ad advertising work. There's this guy, uh, you know, Michael Fleischer, bug fuck crazy. I love his comics. He's insane. He's a madman. He belongs in a booby hatch. His comics are awesome. <laughs> And Michael Fleischer didn't like that. Took it personally. These comic book making people, they sit in a room all by themselves all day. Nobody's checking them. Start to have nothing but your thoughts to think about. Got under his skin. And he decided to sue. Yeah, cut to, uh, what, about eight years later? <laughs> this is still being going on, being uh, drugged through various levels of the legal system culminating in an actual trial yes bifurcating the comics industry people were on the sides of uh of comics journal and harlan ellison and gary groth other people were on the sides against comics journal and gary groth absolutely man <laughs> and we did a, a piece of testimony on a previous video which was uh, jim shooter uh on on the stand the, the witness stand in front of a jury of the peers uh being cross-examined even in relation to this uh so we're going to get into the actual testimony of the 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 defendant the, the culprit the guy who said the words man harlan ellison famous science fiction novelist short story writer screenplay writer i wonder if this um i wonder if this is the trial if Ellison is the defendant or if the comics journal is the defendant or if they're co-defendants. Yeah. I and the reason I say that is like he wouldn't have had to have testified if he's a defendant, right? Like this would have been a choice to go to testify. Yeah, I guess so, right? I think so. Yeah. That shows what we know uh, about uh, <laughs> yeah, right. the, the legal system. And uh, the cool thing is not only do we have lawyers in the audience, but yesterday I read a comment from a former stenographer who was cutting promos on the person who called Tide's title. Uh, like... Yes. Like, uh, for them screwing that up. That's amazing. Yeah. <clears throat> it's fantastic. So, uh, without further ado, 
This round, Jimmy's going to play Harlan Ellison. I'll play the voice of everybody else. And at this point, it is uh, Fleischer's attorney, S. Pitkin Marshall, calling him up as a witness, I guess. And uh, we'll just we'll just go from there. Yep. You ready, Harlan? <laughs> Hit it. All right, Mr. Ellison, the first portion... The first portion, which I would like to refer more specifically to, is the second column of page 94, about one-third of the way down, where you are beginning to talk about the comic, about the book review of Chasing Harry. And the sentence I want to quote to you begins with, it said, and then there's a quotation. Do you see that? Yes. Qu- quote, it said, this book is so fucking twisted, there's no point in even discussing it. Is it beyond the pale? Who is this publisher? End quote. My question to you is, when you made that statement, did you intend to convey to the readers or listeners that you were making a direct quotation from the publisher's weekly review? No, sir. Excuse me? No, sir. The second portion I would like to read to you, Mr. Ellison, is above that, and it's also talking about the publisher's weekly review, and it begins with the word, the, and it says, the publisher's weekly. Have you found that? Yes. I will read it to you. Quote. The publisher's weekly review said, quote, uh, This is the product of a sick mind. It is so twisted and nauseating, it has no, absolutely no, redeeming social value. End quote. My question about that is, when you made that statement, did you intend to convey to the listeners, sick, uh, in those words, were an actual quotation from the PW review? No, sir. How long prior to giving the interview was it that you had read the PW review? The last time I had read the publisher's weekly review prior to giving the interview was on July 23rd. The interview was given on October 2nd, 1979. Is the time you read it in July the time you discussed it with Len Wein and Marv Wolfman? That is correct. That was on July 23rd? Same day I discussed it with Gary Groth, yes. Had you also read the PW review of the book? I would like to see that review, if I might, sir, before I answer your question. I show you what has been marked as deposition exhibit number 58. Yes. Pause. Yes, this is the review that I read, and I read that sometime mid-June, around the 18th of June. And you also read it at the end of July, is that correct? That's correct. So it was two months since you had seen the review when you made these statements. Isn't that correct? That is correct, sir. And at at the time you made these statements, it's correct, isn't it, that you knew that? Excuse me, sir. Are you saying that it was two months between the time I had originally read it and the time that I discussed it with Len and Marv, or two months between July 23rd and October 2nd? (laughs) I'm saying that it's two months between the last time you read it and the last time you talked about it at the October interview. Yes, it's about two and a half months, two months and a week. You knew, did you not, at the time that you made these statements that it would be impossible for you to quote accurately from that review after a lapse of two and a half months? It was my impression that I was giving, sir. It was not a quote. Excuse me, Mr. Marshall. I haven't asked a question. I have an answer to a question you asked me earlier. I see on this left-hand column here that at one point there, right in the middle, I say it's 1 o'clock, and this is 25-some pages into the interview, so clearly I could not have started at midnight. This is two-thirds of the way through the interview, and I say myself right there, it's 1 o'clock. So apparently... I take it you are now correcting your sworn testimony, which you made in the deposition, uh, which we read to you earlier that uh, you started at midnight, 12 midnight. I am saying that now my understanding is that clearly I must have been wrong when I thought we started later, that we did start much earlier. 
This indicates that we have been speaking for a number of hours because it's one o'clock and it's two thirds of the way through the interview. So I just misremembered the hour, that's all. In the same column, uh, the portion which begins, quote, it's a book about a couple of guys, end quote. Do you see that? Yes. It's a book about a couple of guys who like to beat up women and make them go down on them, end quote. In that portion, you were paraphrasing the book review, were you not, the publisher's weekly review? That and other comments that I had heard about the book from Len and Marv. That was not a paraphrase. That was my best recollection of the review that I had read some months earlier. And weren't you entirely aware at the time that it was impossible for you to even accurately paraphrase the book review with that much distance in time? I believe I have accurately re recollected it, recollected it, the tone of the review in this comment, sir. Let me read to you from pages 41 and 42 of the transcript, which you gave me under oath on August 29th, 1984. And maybe my assistant will give you a copy. Yes, I would like to see that, please. Page 41, Mr. Ellison, I will read my question to you. Question. Uh, that portion of the interview in which you say, is it a book? It is a book about a couple of guys who like to beat up women and make them go down on them. In the end, they pick up a woman, a hippie, or whatever the fuck she is, and set fire to her, and she loves it so much she gives them a blowjob. End quote. Quote. Uh, do you claim that that was an accurate paraphrasing of what the review said? Answer. Obviously, maybe you should give that answer. Okay. Obviously not. I had it backwards. We are talking five months after my having read the review. June was when I read the review. October is when I gave the interview. So at least to the extent your paraphrasing was not an accurate version of what the review said, is that correct? That's correct. To the extent that I had it backwards, that they set fire to her when she... You just misread it, sir. That's correct. To the extent that I had it backwards, that they set fire to her, then she gave them a blowjob in the book. It's the reverse. Were you asked those questions and did you give those answers? Yes. So does that refresh you as to my earlier question as to whether or not it was impossible for you to even paraphrase the book review correctly at the time you gave the interview? Mr. Lyons, objection to form, Your Honor. The court overruled. No, sir. What I was speaking to was the tone of the review. I asked if your recollection was refreshed. Yes, it was refreshed. Oh, it was refreshed? Yes, absolutely. And what is your re recollection as it is uh, now refreshed? My recollection is that obviously the woman would have to give them a blowjob and then be set on fire. It was a simple mistake, a simple twist of the tongue. I remembered exactly what I had said. It was simple, Mr. Ellison, but it wasn't my question. My only question was, wasn't it impossible for you? And didn't you tell us under oath that it was impossible for you to accurately paraphrase the PW review at the time you gave the interview in October of 1979? Lyons, objection. Norwick, objection, Your Honor. It doesn't say that. The court overruled. I did not say it was impossible. Mr. Marshall says, uh, after you say, quote, right, right, you say, quote, this is a guy... It's like looking into the paintings of Giger. There's a genuine twisted mentality at work here, and it's fascinating to look at, and I understand he's a very nice, pleasant man, end quote. Referring more specifically to the statement, quote, this is a guy, end quote, by the word, quote, end quote, guy, you are referring to Mr. Fleischer, are you not? I began to say a sentence about Mr. Fleischer. Yes, I did not complete it. But the beginning comment uh, that you made was about Mr. Fleischer. This was a guy quote-unquote, 
was about Mr. Fleischer, yes. My second question is, when you said, there's a twisted mentality at work, in that sentence, you are referring to Mr. Fleischer's mentality, are you not? Yes. Excuse me? Yes. Referring to the portion, quote, and I understand he's a very nice, pleasant man, end quote, you were referring in that portion to Mr. Fleischer, were you not? Yes, I was. When Mr. Groth says, quote, I understand he looks like an accountant, <laughs> end quote, uh, did you understand Mr. Groth to be also referring to Mr. Fleischer? Yes. In the following statement, quote, aren't all Texas Tower snipers like that, end quote, then it goes on, et cetera, et cetera, in the cornball accent about going to the church, uh, who were the people that you were making reference to when you referred to the Texas Tower snipers? People who seem to be what they are not. People who seem to be very, very mild and then go out and commit terrible crimes. More specifically, mass murderers? Well, whoever does that sort of thing. And in reference, uh, it is true, is it not, that you were comparing Michael Fleischer to those people who seem to look like an accountant, but they are really actually something that they don't look like. No, Mr. Marshall, that's not what I was doing at all. You were comparing Geiger to those people. No, sir, that's not what I was doing at all. Further down on the same page. You don't want to ask me what I was doing, is that it? You have three lawyers here who can ask you that. The court says, please. Sorry. <laughs> We're getting feisty. Marshall, further down uh, the same page, after you talk about, quote unquote, Christian boy, you say, quote, Fleischer, I think he's certifiable. That is a libelous thing to say, and I say it with some humor, end quote. My question about that. Uh, in that sentence, did you intend the word certifiable to be a short form of certifiably insane? No, sir. I meant it to be humorous. You don't read it humorous, but that's obviously what it was intended to be. Other than humorous, just as to the definition of it, did you intend it to be a short form of certifiably insane? No, sir. I did not. It is true. Uh, is it not, Mr. Ellison, that by the time you made that statement, you had already knew that you had gone too far. You had already stepped over the bounds and already had committed libel. Lyon says, objection. Marshall says, isn't that correct? The court says, sustained. And then uh, Marshall says, isn't that correct, Mr. Ellison, that when you said, quote, that is a liable thing to say, and I say it with some humor, end quote, isn't it true that at that point in time, you said that you knew you had been saying things about Fleischer, which could have been seen as liable? No, sir. I said nothing libelous. I never thought anything libelous. I never intended it in that way in any way at all. The way you read my words, sir, is very, very different than the way it was said. What was it that made the whole idea of libel pop into your head at that moment? It was all a gag. I was talking about it. I was, in fact, doing what is commonly called by comedians as shticks. It means a routine. It was a running kind of gag. It was a way of talking about the material in an interesting way and seeing it as completely different from who the author was. The material itself came from one place and the author, as I understood it, was quite another kind of person. When you got into the middle of your shtick, it suddenly occurred to you as libel that some part of your shtick may be seen as libel. That's what you said. That's not what I said. You said that this is a libelous thing to say. What I said, sir, it's right here is, quote, Fleischer, I think he's certifiable, and I think that's a libelous thing to say. I say it with some humor. I never met the man, end quote. What I see in Fleischer's work and Giger's work is a very different thing. You never really did say, quote, 
I never met the man, did you? I'm sorry? You never did say, quote, I never met the man, end quote. That's what it says here, quote, I never met the man, end quote. What you said at the interview is, quote, I never met the man, or maybe I have, end quote. Is that what I said? I think that's what the tape said you said. Why don't you play the tape, sir? What's your recollection of it? I don't re recollect that at all. If that's what it says here, and that's what you're asking me about, that's what I'm answering to. It says here I never met the man. I had no recollection of whether I met him or not. I was pretty sure I had not. Isn't the point that you didn't... Isn't the point that you didn't care? The point is, I was not libeling the man. I was talking about his work. If you were libeling the man, the point was that you didn't care whether you had met him or had not met him. You were going to say the same things. Lion says, If, Your Honor, he's calling now for speculation. Marshall says, I withdraw the question, Your Honor. Let me ask you one more question about the part uh, we have been on, Mr. Ellison. Uh, the one single limited sentence, quote, Fleischer, I think he's certifiable, end quote. When you made that statement, you were talking about Fleischer, the man, not his work. Isn't that correct? No, sir. Further down in the same column, uh, quite near the bottom, I read, I read to you, uh, I read to you where after your last comment on that page where it says, Ellison. That's fascinating. What's interesting is that the thing that makes Fleischer's stuff interesting was the same reason Robert E. Howard was interesting and nobody else can imitate him because Howard was crazy as a bed bug. He was insane. This was a man who was... I'll stop there. Uh, when you made those statements, you had some knowledge that Howard at least was, in fact, insane. In a serious way, isn't that correct? No, sir, I did not have any knowledge that Robert E. Howard was insane. I knew that he had problems, and I talked about those problems, but that isn't the way that material was spoken, and it's not the way that material was intended to be taken. Marshall. This whole thing, uh, you know, interjection here, this whole thing reminds me so much of, of uh, the early days of social media and maybe even to some extent the current days where it's like, especially with comedians or something, somebody trying to say something funny, whatever, and then it's just like, let's analyze this yeah. in every way possible. And it's not funny by itself. It's not funny out of context. It's not funny when I retweet it with my comments added on top of it or related to Robert E. Howard killing himself. Um it's it's every time we read these, I just feel like on edge of this kind of like <laughs> we are going to grill down on every single piece of this sentence that you uttered eight years ago. Right. Wow. Yeah, man. <clears throat> Cartoonist Kayfabe is brought to you by the comic books that we make. Jim Rugg and Ed Piscor are lifelong cartoonists with a heck of a bibliography. And March is Cartoonist Kayfabe month at the comic shops. Jim Rugg is going to be presenting you, Hulk, Grand Design Monster, at the end of March. And Ed Piscor is going to be bringing you uh, Red Room Trigger Warnings, issue number one, um, on March 9th. High Octane, Incredible Hulk comics distilling down the history of the Incredible Hulk into two solid 40-page comics coming month after month. Uh, this will be coming out in April incredible hulk grand design madness these are the variant covers to go along with hulk grand design uh the first run the ed piscor the marcos martin the peach momoko got this uh jeff darrow cover that's going to come with the second issue and jim you've yet to to print me up uh, the ed mcginnis variant cover that's coming up with that next one coming soon <laughs>
Red Room Trigger Warnings, Murder on the Dark Web for Fun and Profit. Uh, first issue coming out, like I said, March 9th. And these are the additional covers uh, to go along with that. The Jim Rugg, By Way of Robert Crumb, Peach Momoko, and the Eddie P variant. Going to be coming out on a monthly basis, completely self-contained. And uh, Rising Tide Raises All Ships. And we have other books in print at the moment. The Breast of Jim's bibliography that you could get on Amazon or at a good comic shop today. Plain Jane's. Street Angel, Deadliest Girl Alive, collecting all of his uh, image comics uh, versions of Street Angel. A family tree that are out in the wild, the box sets and individual issues, so they are no longer $200 on eBay and Amazon any anymore. WYSIWYG, still in print, Portrait of a Serial Hacker, get your hands on that. And the grand design that started them all, X-Men Grand Design, three volumes of that that you can get easily at uh, any good comic shop or on Amazon. And there is also an omnibus that is out of print, uh, but you might be able to find it in the wild here and there. I was out at the flea market recently, saw a copy. Now that we're done paying the bills, let's get back to the video. My only limited question is, aha, you knew, did you not, that he was an insane person? No, I knew that he had problems. His biography said he had problems. You had read his biography? I read some, yes. You knew from his biography that he had been institutionalized for insanity from time to time, is that correct? Not for insanity. He had been institutionalized for mental problems. Not insanity, but mental problems. People have a lot of different kinds of problems, and that doesn't mean he was insane. But he was institutionalized in a mental institution. He was under a doctor's care in an institution. I don't know whether that was an insane asylum. You know he committed suicide? Yes, I knew he committed suicide. The information that you that you had, that you just told us before from his biography, that you had about Howard, uh, which you based this statement on, uh, that information didn't indicate that he was insane in some sort of light, humorous, amusing way, did it? He was seriously insane, seriously mentally disturbed, I think is your word. He had mental problems. The degree of his problems is not for me to know. Sir, I am not a psychiatrist. That book, uh, they were not just doing a shtick when they talked about his mental problems. That's correct. It was a biography. When they talked about his suicide and his being institutionalized, that wasn't a shtick? No, sir. The same thing that makes Howard's work interesting is the same thing that makes Fleischer's work interesting. Isn't that correct? In my view. And that's insanity, is it not? No. It's insanity in one case and a shtick in the other case? It's not. I don't say that in my death position and I don't say that now. I was not talking about insanity. I am only asking you the same simple question. No, it is not insanity that makes Mr. Fleischer's work interesting or Mr. Howard's work interesting. Isn't that exactly what you say in this sentence? And I will read it to you. Quote, what's interesting is that the thing that makes Fleischer's stuff interesting was the same thing, the same reason Robert E. Howard was interesting. And nobody else can imitate him because Howard was crazy as a bed bug. He was insane. End quote. And you just told us uh, that you meant insane in a. And you just told us that you meant insane in a serious non-shtick sense. You have read it. Mr. Lyons says objection. The court says objection sustained. Marshall says I am referring to the next page, the left-hand column on page ninety-five. It is about one-third the way down, beginning with the word Lovecraft. Yes. I will read it to you. Quote, Lovecraft, you can tell a Lovecraft story from a Ramsey Campbell story, from all the rest of those schlabos uh, trying to imitate him, all the nameless yutzes shrieking like Lovecraft. They still have not 
got the lunatic mentality of Lovecraft. And the same for Fleischer. He really is a derangio. Now in your ref... End quote. Now in your reference to Lovecraft in that section, you make those statements with the knowledge that Lovecraft too was either insane or seriously mentally disturbed. Isn't that a fact? No, sir, that's not a fact. You made those statements based on some readings of a biography uh, of Lovecraft, did you not? No, sir, I made it on the basis of my reading of Lovecraft for 35 years. But you didn't also read a book about Lovecraft, uh, and didn't you know that he had been institutionalized? You asked me what my impression was based on. I gave you an honest answer. It was based on his work. As of the time you made these statements in October uh, in the interview, you knew that Lovecraft was not sane and that he had been institutionalized in mental institutions. Uh, isn't that correct? Mr. Lyons says objection. The court says overruled. I did not know if he was insane. I knew that he had mental problems and that had been discussed in articles about his work. I had not read a biography until subsequently. But you knew at the time uh, you wrote this that he had been institutionalized in a mental institution. No, sir. I knew no such thing. I knew he had mental problems and people had said that he was disturbed. That's what I knew. I will refer you to page 63 of your sworn testimony in a deposition in this case taken on August 29th of 1984. Question. Uh, what is... Or what was, in 1979, your information as to the mental health or sanity or insanity of Lovecraft? In general, my perception of Lovecraft's life from biographies of Lovecraft and essays on the subject were that he was a very solitary, lonely man who lived a reclusive life in Baltimore. He was inordinately, and again, one might say, preternaturally obsessed with death, immolation, Freudian psychology, and the dark aspects of human nature. And I think you said uh, in your interrogatory answers that he was institutionalized to your knowledge? That was my understanding, that he had been in several institutions, however briefly. Mental institutions? That was my understanding. And that was your understanding in 1979? Yes. When you talked about Lovecraft, correct? That's correct. In that sequence uh, that I read to you, uh, Mr. Ellison, uh, it is true, is it not, that when you say... Quote, and the same for Fleischer, he's really, he really is a derangio, end quote. You are saying and intending to convey to the reader or listener that Fleischer is like Lovecraft in a sense that Lovecraft is insane and Fleischer is also insane, and that's why other sane people cannot imitate their work. Isn't that what you are saying? No, I'm not saying anything even remotely like that, sir. Turning away from the section on Mr. Fleischer, Mr. Ellison, and referring to the introduction, uh, which was written to the Ellison interview, uh, that would be on page 69, if you still have that magazine there. Yes. And on the second column, the last paragraph of page 69, it says, uh, I, and I quote, quote, Ellison is probably aware of his image as an unreasonable troublemaker, but, end quote. And my question to you is... Had you communicated anything to Mr. Groth by that point to suggest to him that you knew you had that image? Did I? I'm not sure I understand your question. I will ask it again. Mr. Groth says, quote, Ellison is probably aware of his image as an unreasonable troublemaker, end quote. My question is, had you, before the interview was published, communicated anything to Mr. Groth to suggest to him that you were aware of that image? I suppose I have been aware of being called that, yes. Yes, but did you let Mr. Groff know that you had an image as an unreasonable troublemaker? I may or may not have, sir. I don't recall at this late juncture. 
In your view, uh, was it part of the reason why Mr. Groth sought for so long to get an interview with you? Was your image as an unreasonable troublemaker? I do not know what was in Mr. Groth's mind. You have to ask Groth that. Did you say anything? Did he say anything to you? Uh, that's one of the reasons he wanted to give. He wanted you to give an interview. I don't recall Mr. Groth saying, I want an interview with you because you are an unreasonable troublemaker. No, I don't recall him saying that. On page 76 of the interview, I will start with the sentence, quote, I mean, they're never going to get any better, end quote. I will start there, quote. I mean, they're never going to get any better. What's the name of the guy who used to do over at Marvel? He used to do the worst artist in the field, Gary Groth says, Don Heck. <laughs> Ellison goes, Don Heck. Laughter follows. When you made that reference, did you know who Don Heck was? A yes or no question. No. On page 77, left-hand column and fourth down from the top, you say, quote, 5,000 Don Hecks are not, are not worth one new Adams. And I don't even know Don Heck. I'm not even sure I ever met Don Heck. And I mean him no harm when I say this. I'm talking about his work, talking about what I see on the page, end quote. Uh, my question to you, Mr. Ellison, is when you made those statements, were you talking about Don Heck or were you, were you talking about uh, somebody else whom you mistakenly thought to be Don Heck? At this point, I'm obviously talking about Don Heck's work. You said, did I know Don Heck? I didn't. I knew his work, and that's what I was talking about there. Don Heck's work. On page 86, on the right-hand column, about two-thirds of the way down, starting with, quote, Ellison. Uh, oh, maybe you do this? My objection goes to, see, it's happened to me, and I can spot it happening to somebody else. You go through periods where all of a sudden everybody's down on you for no reason in particular. It's just that you are considered shit. Like, you take a Don Heck. There's a reason why everybody thinks he's shit. That's because he's shit. When you made that statement, uh, were you talking about Don Heck the person, or were you talking about his work? I was talking about his work. Mr. Lyons says, objection, your honor. I never met Don Heck. The court goes, overruled. Marshall says, isn't it true, Mr. Ellison, that when you did finally write an apology to Don Heck, the primary thing that you apologized for is that you had meant to be talking about his work, but it had really turned out that because you were very tired, you ended up talking about the person. Isn't that accurate? No, sir, that is inaccurate. I refer you to page 82, the second column on page 82, quote, I deny the nobility and honor of the common man. I, I think to be common is to be base. I think it is closer to the animal state than to be uplifted and noble. I think that I am clearly an elitist and that it has always been the worst thing you can call someone. I mean, you could call someone an incestuous child raper and it is less offensive to the monkey mass uh, than being called an elitist because what it says is I'm better than you. And there are people who are clearly better than the rest. No one can convince me that Albert Einstein was not better than everyone around him when he was alive. End quote. My question is, Mr. Ellison, first of all, what is the monkey mass? The kind of people who will sit in their window and watch Kitty Genovese get knifed to death without doing anything about it. The kind of people who litter. The kind of people who would rather take than give. People who worry only about themselves. People who lie as a matter of course. People who have no ethics. How about people who watch TV? Are they part of the monkey mass? Depends. When you made these statements, were you aware that the Comics Journal also considered itself indeed uh, promoted itself as an elitist journal? I did not know that, sir. 
Is that something you learned in your communications with Mr. Groth through the interview and in the fall of 1979 and up to the publication time? I'm not sure I've ever learned it up to this moment, sir. On, on page 84, about two-thirds of the way up in the left-hand column, anyhow, uh, to tie quote, anyhow, to tie off that thought, the monkey mass, the wad, the great sleeping wad, all it wants is to be comfortable and fat. All it wants is its television and its car, and it doesn't want to be infringed upon. It resents the gas crunch only because it can't have off-road dune buggies <laughs> to tear up the land and get out in the woods and start fires with their fucking campfires and be as fat and happy as they've always wanted to be. The pursuits of intellect, the pursuits, the court says. Please, Mr. Marshall, this gentleman, the stenographer, sits here all day and has to take it down. <laughs> Marshall, I beg your pardon. I will stop reading there. Let me stop and edit and go down uh, to the point where Mr. Groth says, asks the question slightly below the same col column. Mr. Norwick says, objection, your honor. The court says, I think we better have a short conference, gentlemen. Then we have the sidebar. Should we keep going? I, I'm looking at this and it's I just see two columns with no Harlan Ellison. What is this sidebar? It's incredible how much Marshall is... Um, talking here yeah should we get back should we uh, go back to open court sure yeah because it does seem very minutiae has nothing to do with like it's it's all it's all man it's a guy that likes to hear himself talk yeah okay so we're back to open court mr elif mr ellison uh Referring you to page 80, the right-hand column, about two-thirds of the way down, it starts a, a paragraph and says, quote, I've got a reputation, uh, end quote. I'm going to read that to you. Quote, I've got a reputation for being a terrible man and a brutal, ruthless, rotten human being. A woman I know said, quote, I was afraid to meet you. I heard you brutalize women. I said, I do. I do, you know. I beat them with big sticks. I tear out their eyeballs, I embed them in walls, I am a rotten human being, a rotten human being, end quote. The stories they tell about me serve a very good and very worthwhile end. I love them, man. I love to hear the crazed mythology that comes back to me. I love it when they say I threw somebody down an elevator shaft, and they believe it. They believe it. My question is, Mr. Ellison, is one of the reasons that you love the reputation uh, which you are articulating there uh, because you use it to promote yourself at speeches and in your books and in your communications with people in the industry? I meant just the opposite there, sir. I did not mean I love it. It's obviously irony. I don't love it at all. I don't like it at all. That's what the paragraph says. The way you read it makes it sound as if I love it. I don't like it at all. I was being ironic. Your testimony is that if you read, is that if read properly, your paragraph is that you don't like your reputation from throwing people down elevator shafts, correct? That's right. That paragraph uh, that leads in, does it not uh, to the same story about how you punched out Adrian Samish? That's correct. Let me read the Adrian Samish section, and that is on page 81, left-hand column, top of the page. I will try to go very slowly. Quote, yeah, <laughs> maybe you should read this. I'll read this. Yeah. Yeah, they did an article about it in TV Guide a few years ago, 
It was a man named Adrian Samish, who was at that time the head of ABC Network Continuity, which is the censors. He was a gibbering gargoyle who was a failed advertising man, a failed college man, and a failed homosexual. He couldn't even make it in that area. And they put him in as head of censors, and he came on at a story conference for my script for Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea and insisted that I make a lot of stupid changes. And I said, those are stupid, and you're stupid for asking for those things. I mean, I don't know who you are, but I am a writer. I have no idea what you are, but I wouldn't make those changes. And he said, you'll make them all right. And I said, no, you don't understand. I will not make them. And he said, writers are toadies. You'll do as you're told. And I want bananas. We were at this long conference table in Irwin Allen's conference room. Irwin was to the right of me, and there were 26 yes men all up and down. I jumped up out of my chair because it was the quickest way to get to him. It was a narrow room, and everybody had their chairs back and their chairs forward, and I would have had to go around them, and I saw blood red, and I wanted him then. I didn't want to have to go around anything, so I just took the straightest route, which was right down the middle of the fucking table. There were papers and everything, and I slipped on them and went right on my gut and just slid down the length of the table, and as I approached him, it was like one of those Alfred Hitchcock dolly in shots, and pow, I tagged him a good one right in the pudding trough, and zappo, over he went, ass over tea kettle, windmilling backwards, and fell down and hit the wall, and Irwin had this big six-foot-long model of the sea view, which I guess they had used as a miniature on the series, and it came off its brackets and dropped on top of him and just busted this dude's pelvis. <laughs> Groth says, it sounds like a Roadrunner cartoon. Yeah, that's exactly what it was. It was a Roadrunner cartoon and I went for him. I was still going, hanging half off the table, my ass on the table. I was swinging and I can't quite reach him. And three guys grabbed me and dragged me into another room. And I'm doing an audio, audio, adagio. And I'm doing an adagio, you know, let me at him. I'll eat the fucker's eyeballs. I'll tear out his heart. I'll spit in the milk of his mother. Piss on him and the snake he slithered in on. I was crazed. They put me on a chair, you know. Take it easy. Take it easy. Oh, he was going to sue Irwin. He was going to sue me. He was going to sue 20th Century Fox. Irwin settled out of court. I don't know how much he gave him, but he settled out of court on the thing. My question about that story, Mr. Ellison, first of all, it's true, isn't it? Yes. Second of all, it happened 15 years before you gave it in the Comics Journal, didn't it? More than that. I believe it was something like 1964 or 65, something like that. This is the kind of story, I take it, that you uh, just told me a couple of minutes ago that you hate to hear people saying about you. Mr. Lyon says, objection. Marshall says, you feel bad when you get that sort of reputation. The court says, overruled. That's not the sort of story I object to. Marshall says, uh, this sort of story you consider to be a part of your reputation, uh, which doesn't make you feel bad? It's a true story. Yes. I don't object to true stories. What I object to are lies. This true story, don't you tell it over and over and over again, uh, even though it happened 18 years ago? Isn't that a fact? Over and over and over again? Yes, over and over and over and over again, in print. I tell it when I am asked about it. I don't tell it when I'm not asked about it. Right now, I'm asking you. Don't you tell it over and over and over in print? My answer, sir, is precisely that. I talk, I answer it when I am asked about the incident, I talk about the incident. You know the interview that was in RBCC, the Harlan Ellison special that we were talking about yesterday? Yes. You told about that incident in that, didn't you? I was asked about it, so I told about it, yes. 
you refer here to the article in the TV Guide a few years ago. Uh, that wasn't an article. That was a panel discussion, wasn't it? It was an article that was. It was an article published in the TV Guide. And you told the story in that article, and you were not asked about it. Yes, I was asked about it. Whether it's in the article or not, I was asked about it. I see. Even if it was not in the article, you didn't volunteer the story. The information was solicited from me by the interviewer, Edith Efron, and I responded to her question. You didn't initiate the story? Not initially, no. Even if it's not printed uh, that way in the article? I talk about it when I'm asked about it. That's my answer. Do you also talk about it when you're not asked about it? I talk about it night and day. You have it the way you want it. I tell it night and day in my sleep. I want it the way it is. I told you the truth. You won't accept my answer. You keep asking me again and again. I keep telling you the same thing each time. Isn't it a fact, Mr. Ellison, that you repeatedly promote yourself by talking about the times you punched out Adrian Samish? Lyon says, objection. Asked and answered about 10 different times. The court says, overruled. I object to the phrase promote myself. I have no PR person. When I am interviewed for whatever reason someone wishes to interview me and they ask me about my life and they ask me by anecdote, I respond to it. Sometimes I say, I'm tired of talking about that. I don't want to talk about it anymore. They are upset about that. This one happens to be one that had common coin and people constantly ask me about it as you are asking me about it. It must mean something because out of all of this, you brought it up. When someone is curious about that kind of particular incident, which is kind of an odd incident, I talk about it. That is my answer, sir. That isn't self-promotion. That is responding to the question. Mr. Ellison, isn't it a fact that you are proud of that story? Lyon says, objection, your honor. The court says, overruled. Proud of the fact that I stood up for myself as a writer, and the writers are not toadies and don't take directions from people when they know what they have written is proper. That's what I am proud of. Aren't you also proud that you broke the guy's pelvis? No, that has nothing to do with pride, sir, at all. Isn't that why you told it in that sort of running tone to make it sound like a Roadrunner cartoon? Because you were proud of it. Lyon says, objection to the characterization of witnesses' testimony. The court says, sustained. Marshall says, Mr. Ellison, Adrian Samish was seated when you punched him, wasn't he? Yes. He was also an older man, wasn't he? Lyon says, objection. Norwick says, objection, your honor. Court says, sustained. Marshall, you punched Adrian Samish again a short while after this story happened, didn't you? Norwick says, objection, your honor. Court says, sustained. You've stated in interviews that you punched Adrian Samish again after this story. Uh, Norwick says, objection. Marshall says, at page 102 of this interview, Mr. Ellison, I will begin to read. I've done a couple of political things in this interview, but on balance. I did them only because what the fuck's the point in kicking a cripple? We are talking about something else uh, that I'm pissed off about out of proper peak. I mean, what's the point? There are certainly enough people I have attacked viciously here to satisfy the most bloodthirsty, end quote. My question in that portion, Mr. Ellison, is when you use the words viciously, uh, did you use it seriously? No, sir. I take it you used that word in some sort of hyperbolic fashion? No, I used it humorously, sir. That was part of a shtick, is that correct? No, sir, that's not a shtick. That's just humor? One hopes so, sir. How about the attacks? The entire phrase, the entire sentence was laying to Gary's talking about the way that the Comics Journal was conducting an interview, and I was just saying that I was sure that people would probably be upset by some of the things I said. 
That was what I was doing. I was using what I thought was some funny language to talk about it. But I am focusing now on, uh, now not on any of that, but the word attack. And you have told me that viciously was meant humorously. How about the word attack? The entire sentence. You were not conveying to Mr. Groth or to the 11,000 people that were going to read this that you really believed you had attacked a lot of people? No, that was not what I was intending to convey at all. But the apology you wrote uh, that we put into evidence, Exhibit 18, is an apology for those attacks, is it not? No, sir. The one thing had nothing to do with the other. They were two entirely separate things. The characterization of my apology because I had attacked people viciously is not correct. I was sorry that people felt badly. I was sorry that my friends felt unhappy. I was doing what a proper person does to put things right when people take. What I said was the truth. Sometimes the truth bothers people. That's my perception of things. I try to do the best I can of telling the truth as I perceive it, and that's the truth. In this phrase, I am merely having a little fun after all of these hours. After 40-something pages of this, I said that it was obvious that I had talked about everything in the world and a lot of people were going to be unhappy. A lot of people I praised, a lot of people I didn't praise. Well, I have attacked enough people viciously here even to satisfy the most bloodthirsty, which was said in humor. It's also true, is it not, that in several phrases you said about Fleischer, you were just having a little fun and they were not meant to be taken seriously. The only part of what I said about Mr. Fleischer that is quite clear is that I was praising him inordinately, praising him for excellence. But the statement that he is certifiable and that it is liable, you said that in fun, didn't you? I couldn't possibly know it, sir. I never met Mr. Fleischer, so I couldn't know whether he was certifiable or not. That's just common sense, it seems to me. But isn't it really the case that you said you didn't know him, or maybe you had, uh, so you didn't care what you said about him? I didn't say that. Um, in any case, Mr. Ellison, among the people that you heard from one way or another, Mr. Ellison, after the publication of the interview was Mr. Fleischer. Isn't that correct? I never heard from Mr. Fleischer. You heard from him, him indirectly? I heard from Mr. Groth. I never heard from Mr. Fleischer. Mr. Groth uh, told you that Mr. Fleischer was upset and was demanding a retraction and an apology, didn't he? He did. And he told you that well before the time you received uh, from Mr. Groth the notice that Mr. Fleischer had actually sent a letter demanding an apology. I heard that on April 25th, 1980. On April 25th? April 25th, 1980. You heard for the first time what? I received a phone call from Gary Groth saying that he had received a phone call from Mr. Fleischer, that Mr. Fleischer was upset about the things I had said about him. And I said, what is he upset about? I compared him to Howard Phillips Lovecraft and Edgar Allan Poe. Pretty fast company. Why would he be upset at being praised? He said he is upset. Within five minutes of hearing Mr. Fleischer was upset, I called him long distance from California to New York. I went and found his phone number through where he had worked. I called him and told him that I would be happy to write him any kind of apology he wanted, that I had not intended anything but praise for his work, and if he misread it... Let me ask you a few more questions about that uh, telephone call you made to him. Uh, it is a fact, is it not, that you were abusive and belligerent in tone when you talked to Mr. Fleischer on that occasion? That is not true. Isn't that true? Yes or no? No. Isn't it also true? Listen, to, isn't it also true? What a fuck. Isn't it also true that in conversation, Mr. Fleischer told you that, yes, uh, indeed, he was unhappy and upset, and he told you that he wanted an apology. Is that true? 
No, sir, that's not true either. Let me ask you another question. Isn't it also true that in the telephone conversation, you loudly and angrily assured Mr. Fleischer that he would never get an apology out of you? Isn't that correct? No, sir. No? Uh, isn't it also true that in that telephone conversation that you told Mr. Fleischer several times that you had quoted uh, verbatim from the publisher's weekly review? No, sir, we never mentioned the publisher's weekly review. Isn't it also true that that at the end of the conversation, you suggested to Mr. Fleischer in some way that he was crazy for not understanding your version of the remarks you had made in the interview? No, the end of the conversation with Mr. Fleischer was him hanging up on me. Yes, he did, the court. Counsel's comments will be stricken. Lyon says, objection, your honor. Marshall says, isn't it true that before he hung up, he didn't just slam the phone. He said, I'm not going to carry on this conversation any longer. Then he hung up. No, sir. He never said anything like that. You told us earlier that you apologized to Mr. Fleischer in your phone conversation with him. It was not an apology. What I said to him was, this is the conversation. Just answer my question. No, I did not apologize. I said I was sorry if he had misinterpreted it and that I was sorry that he felt upset. Did you tell him yes or no? Uh, did you tell him that you would be glad to apologize to him? Yes, of course. But you never did apologize to him, did you? No. What I said was I could not retract the statements. Just answer my yes or no question. You never did apologize to him, did you? Is that phone conversation? No, sir. Ever in life? No. Till today? No, I did not, sir. Objection to until today, your honor. Marshall says, did you write a letter? The court says, just a minute, please. I take it the question was intended to be until the beginning of this lawsuit. Marshall says, yes. The court says, the answer is no, you never did. No, that is correct. You also never apologized to him after the beginning of this lawsuit, did you? I have never spoken to Mr. Fleischer, save those two times. But you never wrote him an apologetic letter either, did you? I don't know what you mean by an apologetic letter, sir. A letter apologizing for the statements uh, that you published about him in issue 53 of the Comics Journal. I cannot apologize for praise. No, I did not. But you had told him that you would be glad to. What I said to him, as I started to say before when you stopped me, was that if he felt that he was upset and had been some way mishandled by my words, that I would be happy to reiterate in the clearest possible way that what I said about him was intended as praise, that I thought he was a fine writer, and that I would be happy to write such a letter that I did not think he was crazy, and that my words did not mean to convey crazy or anything like that. But you told us earlier that you told him, in your clearest possible language, that you were willing to apologize. What I just said is what I said to the plaintiff. So then you did not say to Mr. Fleischer that you were willing to apologize. Lyon says, objection. Norwick says, objection, your honor. The court says, objection sustained. Marshall says, at any time until the beginning of this lawsuit, did you not send a letter to Mr. Fleischer which apologized, clarified, explained your position? Yes, I did, sir. You mailed that to Mr. Fleischer? Yes, a copy of what you just saw. What you just showed to me was sent to Mr. Fleischer. Did you send a cover letter with it? No, sir. That letter isn't addressed to Mr. Fleischer, is it? No, sir. Isn't it true, Mr. Ellison, that that was a draft of a letter that you sent to Mr. Groth? It was my public statement in response to my being informed that Mr. Fleischer was intending to sue Mr. Groth in the Comics Journal. It was sent to be it was sent to be publicly an open letter to him, and I sent out of courtesy a copy to Mr. Fleischer. 
It was never published, was it? I guess not. No, I guess it wasn't. To my knowledge, it was not published. No. Did you participate in the decision to publish it? Not that I recall. It is correct, is it not, Mr. Ellison, that you do not know who the person was who made this decision to terminate the Spectre series? I do, I do not. Is it correct? Uh, it is correct, is it not, Mr. Ellison, that you do not know who the person was who made the decision to terminate the Spectre series? I do not. It is correct that you didn't know that the person, who that person was as of October 2nd, 1979? Not the specific individual, no. It is correct that whoever that individual was, you never had a conversation with him prior to February 1980 as to why the Spectre was terminated. That is correct, sir. Isn't it also correct, Mr. Ellison, that you don't have any information of any kind that Mr. Fleischer has ever been fired from DC Comics? Lyon says, objection, your honor. Without a foundation, he used the word fired at any time. Um, the court says overruled. I've never said Mr. Fleischer was fired, sir. I have never made such a statement ever. That is not my question, Mr. Ellison. You asked me about knowing about him being fired. I know nothing about Mr. Fleischer being fired. You know nothing about whether he was or was not. Is that correct? I know he was taken off Spectre and the Spectre was killed. I didn't say he was fired. Uh, don't you know for a fact that Fleischer has never been fired from DC Comics? I know no such thing one way or the other, sir. Didn't you know in October of 1979 that Fleischer was still working for DC Comics? I knew he wrote Jonah Hex. Yes, sir. And didn't you know that in February of 1980? Yes, sir. And you yourself have been writing for DC Comics. I think you told us uh, you wrote a comic for them within the last year or so? Within the last six months. Isn't it true that Mr. Fleischer is also a writer for DC Comics as of this time? Yes, sir. So it is not only that you have no information as to whether or not Fleischer has ever been fired uh, by DC Comics. You know positively that he never has. Isn't that a fact? I don't know that he was ever fired or not fired, sir. Mr. Fleischer's business is not my concern. Mr. Ellison, I showed you again... Uh, what has been marked as Plaintiff's Exhibit 57 for identification. I refer you, Mr. Ellison, to page 21 of that exhibit uh, under the heading, The Harlan Ellison Letters. Want to read that piece? Well, I have my chagrin and my regrets, but they aren't the ones my communicants would have me pay for. No excuses. I said what I said. Had I taken the trouble to edit the interview, I would certainly have amended, corrected, and deleted some of the remarks, in particular some of the ramble-ons, tongue slips about Don Heck. But after five hours in a state of weariness, my remarks got tangled and I seemed to be saying that the man was less than noble. I am deeply ashamed of myself for having allowed such dumb remarks to go to press. I've never met Don Heck, and I'm told he's a nice person. I meant only to speak of his work. They are two separate things, the man and his work. It is true, is it not, uh, Mr. Ellison, that when you spoke about Mr. Fleischer in the Ellison interview, you have slipped very seriously and begin to speak about the man instead of the man's work. Is that not a fact? No, sir, that is not a fact. You maintain that in the whole section of the interview on Michael Fleischer, you were at all times in all statements speaking about the man's work and not the man. Since I had never met the man, yes, of course, that was all I was speaking about. You've never met Don Heck either, had you? No. But in Don Heck's case, uh, you were speaking about the man and not his work. In Don Heck's case, my tongue slipped, and instead of saying the work is shit, I said the man is shit. And I regretted that and cleared it up. In Mr. Fleischer's case, didn't your tongue slip uh, again a little more seriously for a much longer period of time, and instead of saying his work was crazy, you said the man is crazy. Isn't that a fact? 
No, sir. I was praising the man's work. I didn't know the man. Referring to the, when you make the statement, quote, Fleischer, I think he's certifiable. Weren't you referring to the man in that statement? For the 426th time, sir, I was speaking of the man's work. The man's work. Mr. Marshall. Let me go to the 427th time. I'm sure you will, sir. When you said he's crazy as a bed bug, uh, weren't you speaking of Fleischer the man and not his work? No, I was speaking of his work. The ten issues of the Spectre I had read, sir. When you used the pronoun he, and when you said he really is a derangio, weren't you speaking about Mr. Fleischer and not his work? Apparently your familiarity with literary matters is not very good, sir. I meant the work. I didn't know Mr. Fleischer and therefore could not have and therefore could have no opinion about him, only his work. But you had an opinion about Don Heck, even though you didn't know him, right? Lyon says objection, Norwick says objection, the court says counsel's comment will be stricken. Marshall goes back and says, referring to the top of the next page, Mr. Ellison, and to the last paragraph on the first column, you said, I have, I should have known better and I should have spoken less. I should have spoken more carefully. Just because one has strong views doesn't necessarily mean they have any right being cast out carelessly. I was careless in some of my remarks and apologies are due. Consider them herewith tendered. In that section, did you intend to apologize to Michael Fleischer? No, sir. To Dennis O'Neill. All of that was only for Den Dennis O'Neill? Dennis O'Neill and Don Hack. And for nobody else in the whole Ellison interview that you had talked about? I apologized to whoever I felt I needed to apologize to, sir. It is very clear who I felt the apologies were for. Denny O'Neill and Don Heck, right? You were exhausted at the time you made the comments about Don Heck. Isn't that correct? Lyon says, objection, Your Honor. Honor, no testimony as to exhaustion. Marsha says, you were very tired when you made those remarks about Don Heck. Isn't that right? Tired but in control. And isn't it true that you made uh, the remarks about Michael Fleischer about three hours after you made the remarks about Don Heck? I don't remember, sir, whether I was more tired. Still in control? I would say so, yes, sir. Did you consider the remarks you made about Mr. Fleischer to be praise or tomfoolery? I was clearly praising him. So you meant it? As everything is indicated since, yes, sir. Let me read uh, from your deposition in the case uh, taking on August 29th, 1984. And I'm reading from page 42. Here's the question. Uh, as to the quoted portion, this book is so fucking twisted, there is no point even in discussing it. It's beyond the pale. Uh, at the time you made that statement, did you intend to convey the meaning uh, that was a quotation from the book? No. Uh, you intended that also as paraphrasing? I intended it as tomfoolery. That was not a serious statement that you made? No, none of this is very serious. None of the portion that I have read so far was intended to be taken seriously by the readers? That is correct. It was all hyperbole? I will answer this way. I didn't intend anything in the interview to be taken by any reader. I was not speaking to a reader. I was having a conversation with Gary Groth, and I spoke to him as I would speak to anyone in the privacy of my home. At the time, you... Questioned by the special master. Uh, well, you knew, however, that he was recording it for publication, did you not? That is correct. You were asked these questions, uh, and you gave those answers, did you not, Mr. Ellison? Yes, sir. So it is your testimony here today that none of the remarks that you made about Michael Fleischer were intended to be taken seriously... And it was all just tomfoolery. No, sir. That's not what I said in depositions and not what I say now. But it is what you said in deposition that I just read. 
What I said in the deposition is that I intended the interpretation of the publisher's weekly quote as tomfoolery. That is not an accurate quote at any time. That I was remembering the impression that I had been left with. That's what you have asked me. The praise was sincere praise. How about the remarks that he was certifiable? Was that tomfoolery or, pl or praise? I was talking about his work, sir. Tomfoolery or praise, whatever you were talking about. I was praising him. I show you a document uh, which has been marked Plaintiff's Exhibit 138 for identification. I ask if you can identify that document. Yes, this is an issue of Adventure Comics dated March 1981. That comic story... That comic contains a story based on a story idea that was submitted by you to DC Comics, does it not? No, sir, it does not. Does it make any contribution at all? Did you make any contribution at all to the ideas in that comic book? Yes. What contribution was that? This comic book, Dial H for Hero, the protagonist of this comic strip had a little device which if they dial a certain way, they could become any superhero they wanted to, and they had a contest among kids to send in their ideas who a character should be, who a superhero should be. And I submitted an idea for a character who was used. I had nothing to do with the story. They just used my character, and all through the book, it says such and such a character created by Johnny Jones, age 10, and Mary Sue, age 9. And on this one, it says the Silver Fog was created by Harlan Ellison, age 46. That was my contribution, sir. I offer the comic book. I offer the comic book, Your Honor. Lion says, Objection, Your Honor, for anything other than proof of his age. And then the court says, Sustained. Wow. What did we just read? <laughs> I, if, if a dime of taxpayer money went to any of this, like, what is anybody involved in this doing? Right. Yeah, is he a witness? Like, is this against Gary Groth? Uh, who does pay judges? I am curious about that. Is that taxpayer stuff? Yeah, I'm sure, right? But I, I mean, like, I would look at this and say, what are we doing here? Two writers got, one writer possibly insulted somebody in an interview eight years ago, and here we are in court now after who knows how many layers this has gone through at this point. Throw this out as being a total waste of resources. Totally. If there's nothing better for everybody involved to be doing with their time, then they need to get a different line of work. Because this is not helping anybody. What is going on? This is one of those, like, things, one of the big nightmares of beyond, you know, having a car accident, a fender bender or something. We'll just call it something small, right? Now you introduce this stranger into your life, and that person can be anybody. So it's like, when you're when you're talking that's that smack, you've got to be real careful. Like, like I'm learning things. From the, from these depositions and conversations, man, because this is this is ridiculous to get caught up in this kind of thing, man. And I think, you know, well, after what I just said, I can't speak my opinion. I can, <laughs> I, I, I can share it to you uh, afterward, but I do think that uh, Fleischer seems real sensitive. But there's also this thing because I know people who have who have. Uh, I mean, there's some Pittsburghers who try to do some some legal shit with comics, and I know these people, and uh, I get the impression that like a lawyer that's looking for some loot is gonna tell you a tale like, oh man, there's ten million bucks in this for you, man. Just like I'll handle it this way, this way, this way. And by the way, my fee is five hundred dollars an hour, but we got this, man. 
and I and I <laughs> and wonder to drive up that fee. I'll ask the same question four hundred twenty-seven <laughs> times. Yeah, and and uh, I if it, like reading this, it feels like Fleischer got taken for a ride by by these lawyers. Like the lawyers should be on, on court. Like, what is the outcome at the end of this? What, what's a best case scenario outcome? Like, <laughs> they're gonna like Fleischer's gonna take over the Skyrise skyscraper facilities of the Fantagraphics Publishing Corporation and oust Gary Groth from from his uh, power desk. It know? is bizarre. Or maybe he wanted some stock in Fantagraphics. Uh, uh, you know, in he wanted some Nasdaq shit from Fantagraphics and everybody. I don't know, man. I, it, it conf I'm so confused by the end of this. And I know I've said Kafka in the past with some of these, but I mean, this is really just going in circles and what you're circling is is nothing. I did like that uh, Harlan Ellison was getting spicy. And, and I so was, was like, Jim Rugg. Yeah. <laughs> cool, man. There's a lot more court stuff that we have to cover. Uh, we've got that Marv Wolfman uh, testimony. That one worries me because I haven't read it, but I've read a lot of comments about it and how like i think cruel is a word that's used in that um i can't imagine what's all in that testimony yeah i've, I've given it a glance and it's a lot about it's a lot about i did not sign these characters away for ten dollars a page that would be ridiculous um but historically important for comics this is historically important for comics and i do have that i got it from uh from strange adventures when we were in Nova Scotia, uh, a copy of the Comics Journal with the Harlan Ellison interview. Uh, if this interview's taken three hours, you can imagine it's going to take you three hours to read the thing. It's been on the list for a long time. I don't know how we do that, but it's an important letter. Like it's it divided comics for a while. It's the reason for the Anything Goes miniseries. You know, it's it's got its place for it's sure. So strange. Yeah, the, the footnotes of, of these various books to think that Anything Goes. You know, this is where it stems from or is connected to this. How bizarre. Yeah, for sure, man. So that's not going to be the last courtroom stuff that we have, man. Uh, Kayfabers, like, follow, subscribe to the YouTube channel. Hit the bell. We'll notify you when new vids are available. What's out there, Jimmy? Hulk Grand Design Monster Number 1 is coming to your comic book store in March. Reserve your copy today. Tell your, your store they can still pre-order it until it's actually delivered uh, while supplies last. Yes. Also, tell them you want Hulk Grand Design Madness Number 1, which will be in stores in April. And uh, you can join me on patreon.com slash jimrug. Red Room Trigger Warnings Issue 1, Hitting the Stands, March 9th. Man, Murder on the Dark Web for Fun and Profit. Uh, four issues in this season of Red Room Comics going to be coming out on a monthly basis. Get them at your local comic shop. Order or pre-order them at the Fantagraphics website. My link tree in the description below. And you could, uh, or you could read the comics at my Patreon today. I put everything out before it hits paper. Uh, Patreon.com slash edpiscor. And you could get there by way of my link tree in the description below this video. What else do we have? Subscribe to the Cartoonist Kayfabe newsletter at the links below this video. You can also find Cartoonist Kayfabe t-shirts and merchandise at the links below this video. Given those marching orders, Jimmy, we'll be on our way. Read more comics.